This morning, we are continuing on with our Sermon on the Mount. And it is time to talk about anxiety. Which is why all of you showed up today because you were super excited to talk about anxiety for a bit. But I want to start with a story. Uh, I have a bad habit of not understanding uh, the way that my own tone works in a space, especially with email. So when I was younger, like decade plus ago, early in ministry, I was helping oversee and work with this group of young college students who were part of this leadership team. And we were about to go and do a leadership retreat. And so I sent an email and the email said, hey, so I read in some leadership book that a really good way to build teams is for all of us to show up wearing whatever animal costume best fits our personality. And sort of bracketed this statement with what I thought was heavy doses of snark. But there was one person in our college group, Ben, you know, who went to the store and bought a cat outfit and then started to check around to see if I, so I realized I have a problem. Uh, satire and irony do not communicate over email. So what I decided to do was I, I told the group, anything that appears in a purple font is a joke, which is a terrible way to tell a joke. But when you have people accidentally buying cat ears, you have to clarify things. So. The reason I tell that story is I'm going to start with an article I found that's super great, but is from The Onion. And uh, if you are like me, you may have received someone's forwarded email that has an Onion article inside of it, as though The Onion is a respectable newspaper and not a satire magazine, okay? But I do want to read you this story as we get started this morning. This is an article from The Onion. Here we go. Let's let this set the tone for the day. Potentially offering hope to millions of Americans struggling with psychological and emotional problems. A study published this week in the New England Journal of Medicine found, this is not a true story, found that test subjects were capable of fully resolving their anxiety by thinking about it very, very intensely. The study followed like 1,200 adults suffering from mild unease to chronic anxiety, confirming that focusing continuously and exclusively on one's own specific sources of distress to the point of one's mental and physical health beginning to suffer was associated with complete elimination of anxiety from patients' lives and then their subsequent return to happiness and emotional well-being. Right Of the hundreds of individuals we studied, those who thought about their feelings of dread or apprehension every moment of every day, including throughout their work days at home and social gatherings or at church, we could say, were able to effectively cure themselves of anxiety 100% of the cases. Keeps going like this for quite a while. One participant, April Willis, I'm assuming not a real person, 41, I'm assuming not a real age, Praised the research for resolving deep-seated insecurities about her appearance and her competence, citing in particular the effectiveness of a technique in which she mentally replays her most anxiety-inducing thoughts and memories over and over again in her head all hours of the day and night. And she says, after years of struggling with anxiety, I found that the cure was to simply mentally torture myself, she says. Over every last shred of disquiet in my life until I became so riddled with doubt and unease that I was unable to eat or to sleep. And once I obsessively worried to a point where I was effectively debilitated and felt that I barely even wanted to go on, then poof, the anxiety went away. So of course that's like not a real study that they've done. This is trash because it's not true. Uh, but it is true to my lived experience and maybe to yours too. There is a hazard of this job, which is that each week whenever I sit with a bit of text and sit with a focus where that text in, seems to be sending me, I have to inhabit that space. And I have known for quite a while that a sermon on worry and anxiety was coming up. And I thought, this is going to be a terrible week. And it was a very difficult week because I was like this article just sort of staring at whatever the thing is that makes me feel anxious. And you have your own versions of these things. This morning is not going to be a long litany of things that should make you anxious because that's not very fun. You're welcome. But I want to talk for a minute about what happens to me. I just want to call this into the space and maybe you have your own version of this. Uh, no, not a show of hands, but just Folks in here who maybe have experienced an anxiety or panic attack. That's a lot of us in here, if stats bear out. 
I'm one of those where over different points in my life, I didn't know what it was called. I just felt the physiological effects of anxiety. And so this is what happens to me. Uh, it probably is not what happens to you. Uh, I'll be sitting down. Usually I'm sitting down, uh, which is when my brain slows down enough to settle. And all of a sudden, it's like my brain is going on fast forward and slow motion at the exact same time. By the way, there's cool waters going around if you're feeling anxious and the cool water would help. There you go. Fast forward time and slow motion time at the same moment. And sort of I lift out and can see what's happening to me and feel it. The other thing that happens is my arms lock down on the table and it's as though someone strapped me in. It's awful. It's not a very fun experience. But at some point someone told me this is anxiety taking over your body. Now... One thing that is true about the world in which we live right now is that, uh, especially in the Western world and especially in America, anxiety is sort of everywhere. Decades ago, there was lots of books being written about our age of anxiety, living with the bomb and the world of potential nuclear fallout. All of these cultural things shifting and changing created a lot of anxiety, and we are definitely in one of those moments. This is not new information for Jesus, even if it sometimes feels disorienting for us. So this morning, I want to pause, and I want to call the words from Jesus into our space together. If you would like to ignore everything else that happens over the next 30 minutes or so, you should feel free, except for this part. You could just read these words over and over again. Write them down, long form, by hand, over and over again. And you might find yourself a little bit settled. But let me read for you. This is out of Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. This section is immediately after the section on not serving two masters and practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to the span of your life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. Solomon is sort of the grandest of the line of kings in Israel. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Again, to reiterate the point, therefore, do not worry saying, what do we eat or what we drink or what we wear? For it's the Gentiles who strive after all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring enough anxiety and worry of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. There's one line in there I want to say again. Your Father in heaven knows that you need all of these things. Just a little bit before this is the section on the Lord's Prayer, which we all just said together. The verse right before the Lord's Prayer, I'll read for you. When you're praying, don't empty phrases don't heap up empty phrases like the gentiles do for they think they're going to be heard because they say so many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him your father in heaven knows what you need yeah that's like enough that's the whole that's the whole thing that's the whole sermon if you can hold on to that we might be okay but we're going to say a couple more things together This is often what anxiety can feel like, like we're holding our breath. 
One writer, Alan Watts, who wrote about our age of anxiety, says that anxiety is this sort of force that is trying to secure the future. It's a control mechanism. And when we feel out of control, anxiety moves in and sort of takes up residence and says, I can handle this. If you are out of control, then I know what to do, which is to make you super anxious all of the time. And that will fix it all. This is what Watts says. The desire for security or the feeling of insecurity are the same thing. To hold your breath is to lose your breath. A society based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest in which everyone is as taut as a drum and as purple as a beat. One more time. A society based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest. It leaves everybody as taut as a drum and as purple as a beat. A society built on the quest for security describes the world that we live in. That's like, that's the thing. So much of our life is built to hedge against insecurity, about not sort of feeling grounded in our own lives. And so we have developed all of these different ways to handle that anxiety and to bring security and control back into our lives. The problem is, like he says, this is like taking a deep breath in and never releasing it. It's a problem and you can feel it inside. This is just a fact. You are here. And it's not a radical notion except for the fact that we do not live into it very well often. To be present where you are. The language for anxiety or worry that shows up in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, it shows up five times. Shows up several times in the imperative. Don't be anxious. Now the language of anxiety in the Greek is one of these words that is lovely because it, what it means in its purest form is exactly how it feels. So to be anxious is to be separated. It's the language of disintegration. And that is exactly what happens in moments of heavy anxiety. We place ourselves anywhere other than here because here is too difficult, it's too tense, it's too full of paradox, it's too full of unknowns, it's too vulnerable, we have to be so fragile to be present, and so we'll do anything to kind of wiggle out of that. It's part of why Jesus says, like, don't jump to tomorrow. Stay present to this day, to this moment. So you are here. But anxiety, it does this. It splits us. It puts part of our energies in the past where we roll over things in our mind that we did that we feel like we shouldn't have done. It makes us feel pretty crummy about it or some deal that we let pass by and that's the reason we don't have the life we want or a marriage that fell apart and we could have done something else, right? Something that happened that has unsettled us. It has stirred up the waters or, or often and, we will throw our energies into the future to think, if I can just control where this thing is headed, then I can be okay in this moment right now. All of that pulls us into pieces. It moves us into some dangerous spaces where we are no longer a unified relational whole. But all of our energies and all of our attention, it is dissipated into the wind and we begin to disintegrate. Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, Soren's a fun name. It's got a fun little slash in it too. Soren Kierkegaard is a theologian and a philosopher, super important person over the last several hundred years. He talks about anxiety like this, and I think this is brilliant. There's a lot of reasons why you and I can be anxious. I want to talk about one in particular, one that I think is like foundational in terms of worry and anxiety. And it places anxiety not simply in a negative space, but in just a very natural place. Kierkegaard talks about anxiety as the dizziness of freedom. Here's what that means for me, and I don't know what it means for you. Uh, Have you ever gone to buy something on Amazon? And you were like, I just needed to get one Speedo. (laughs) Or whatever you're going to buy, one tank top. And you think, I don't need to know how many exist in the world, I just need one. That's the only number of Speedos any person should own even though I own two. 
And you'll go and you'll be bombarded with choice. Now, all of this choice in consumerism is the way that we define freedom. Like freedom is the ability to buy 17 different kinds of peanut butter on one trip to the grocery store. And it creates this sort of anxiety for me, this angst of I have so much breath and space here to navigate in this consumption world. I don't know what to choose. But Amazon both creates the anxiety and then they fix it. Because what do they have? They have their choice at the top of the feed. And that's great because it solves the problem for me. In the midst of all of these choices, I know whatever Amazon tells me is the right choice is the right choice. And because Amazon is kind of my God a lot of the time, I click buy on that thing. Now, the reason this matters for us, the reason it matters for the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus' invitation to enter into the kingdom of God, it is an anxiety-producing journey. It is not easy. It's not just simply like taking a step in the direction you were already moving. I always tell people this when they get ready to be baptized. I sort of say, are you sure? Like, are you really sure? Because... A move toward God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is an invitation to your own disintegration. The world that you know, the world that you have found to be solid and reliable, whatever that world might be, is about to be washed away. And it it, it creates within us this moment of panic. That's what Jesus is talking about here, about not being anxious. He's just told us in the passage before, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve one or the other. And then sets up the juxtaposition. You can either serve mammon or you may serve God. You can serve Pharaoh's economy or you can serve God's world. Is the way we talked about it last week. You have to choose. And in that choice is the invitation to freedom. And in that freedom is the invitation to anxiety. It looks like this. This is the best image I can come up with for that space between forms. Between the old world and the new world. Between the old self and the new self. It's like a trapeze artist. In that moment, when the trapeze artist lets go, before they grab onto the other side, when they are suspended, that is that moment of suspended terror. That is the space of anxiety because that is the existence between two Realities. Now, every week, every week, this is the invitation that we offer here, which is the invitation to leave one world and enter into another world, to leave one system and enter into a new one. We have to recognize what that old system was doing for us, and that's going to take us back to Egypt. Because that trapeze act, that box in the middle, that in-between space, the fancy word for it is liminality or liminal space, the place between forms, uh, that's the whole place they live in the Exodus. That's the wilderness. That is the place between forms. Egypt was not a great place for them to be. They were slaves. They had very limited freedom. However... They knew what to expect. They knew where the food was going to come from. They knew where their shelter would come from. They knew where they existed in the society structure. Egypt was for the Hebrew people an anchor in reality. God is not dumb to this. Part of the reason for the move through the wilderness is because change takes time. And disintegration, the sort of falling apart of an old identity, which is what happens in the Exodus... It's traumatic. It produces its own anxiety. So to leave that anchor point and to move toward what we would call the promised land, or this land flowing with milk and honey, it involves moving through that unknown space that we would call freedom. Right here. That's where the action is. Here's what I call this space. The place of freaking out. 
That's exactly what happens, though, in the Exodus story. Do you remember all the stories of the wilderness wanderings? They get hungry and they panic. And in their panic, they're like, we should probably kill Moses. Because Moses brought us out here. And we should probably go back to Egypt. Because Egypt, we know where we belong. We know who gave us food in Egypt. We're really thirsty out here. We should probably kill Moses. And we should probably go back home to Egypt. They freak out in the desert. There is this kind of ultimate moment of freaking out though. And we're going to spend some time there this morning. Because this is heavy in the background for our passage today. This idea of worry and anxiety. And this hits right where we are most Sundays. Most of our relationship with God. That's the golden calf story. So let me give you a quick little sketch of the book of Exodus. The beginning of the book of Exodus is a story about how this Hebrew people became slaves in this place called Egypt. This entire, uh, this entire identity group uh, find themselves in servitude. They're building bricks to build storehouses for grain because you never know when there's going to be a famine. And Egypt is always prepared because Egypt makes for a good, stable system. You can trust Egypt. The problem is the Hebrew people cry out in their distress. God answers them. God saves them. So the first 10, 15 chapters is about God rescuing the people of Israel out of Egypt and moving them toward the land of promise. But they don't immediately get there. They don't like walk through the sea because the sea parts and they leave and Egypt dies behind them. They don't walk through and then sort of like open the next door and then here is the promised land, right? There's a lot of stuff that happens in between these two spaces. Not to mention the whole ordeal is traumatizing. Just picture for a moment, picture for a moment that you have lived in this place called Egypt and Pharaoh is this like super strong, pretty intense dude Who's kept you in bondage. He's got a lot of weapons, a lot of tanks, and a lot of bombs. And he sent them after you in the sea. And you're running, and you're running, and there's the sea. And you're like, okay, we're definitely going to drown. And then the sea opens, and you move through it. And you think, this is crazy. But then you look behind you, and the seas close and swallow up all of that power. Kill it. Do you feel great? Or do you feel scared? I would feel terrified. Because God in this story looks like a mob boss. Right, who's sort of taking care of your problems and is now just standing on the other side of the shore waiting. Israel was rightfully anxious about their future. It was unknown. It was wide open. The language we could use is it was free. So, keep going in the story. They're in this wilderness space. They receive the law and the commandments about how they're going to order their lives in this place in between as they become the people of God because they've been the people of Pharaoh for so long. Moses keeps going up to this mountain, to this volcano, to talk to this new God, to commune. And the people are left down here. And so there's all of the spiritual action happening somewhere where they are not. And around chapter 32... Right? They start to freak out again. And they say to one another, and they say to their appointed leader, Aaron, who's left behind at the bottom while Moses is up at the top, like, listen, I don't know where this guy Moses is who brought us out of Egypt. I have no idea what's happening on top of that mountain. But we kind of need something that we can hold on to here. Give us something that feels rooted. And so Aaron and them come up with a plan, and they sort of all take off their jewelry, throw it into a fire, and out comes this golden calf. And they worship it, and they say, like, here is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is rightfully upset. Moses is rightfully disappointed. Lots of people die in this story. It's terrible. But it's natural. They had an anchor point in Egypt. And their liberation, their salvation from that space makes them feel suspended and ungrounded, uprooted. So of course, of course, they try to anchor back down. And what they do is they try to anchor God back down. The calf, this golden calf is not some other God. This golden calf is a representation of the God they've been trying to grasp hold of since they met this God in fire and fury. And this is where I start to relate heavily to this impulse. 
It's not just my freedom that is terrifying. It's God's freedom that is terrifying. What happens if God is free? If God is wild and untamed? If I can't pin God down? Now, the language for religion in the Latin, it means to bind. And I often think that churches, spiritual movements, we get it like exactly backwards where we assume that religion is a way to bind God securely to our lives. As though church is this long list of tools that I'm going to give you that help you tie God down securely so God can't escape to some other space, some other time. That's what they're doing with this golden calf. They're saying this God that rescued us is is too unpredictable. We really would prefer a sturdy anchor. And so they capture God, or they think they do. They pin God down, stake him to the ground, and then they worship, and they feel free. They feel calm and full of partying. To move between forms is an anxiety-producing journey. If you're between the ages of uh, 10 and 25, you know that this is true. Becoming an adult after having been a child is a treacherous journey. I wouldn't go back to being 12 if you paid me a whole lot of money. Would anyone go back to being 12 years old? Like that was hard. You would. You had a very different experience than I did at 12 years old, my friend. No, I would not do it. All these kinds of journeys between forms are fraught. So let me just name a few for you. I want you to feel the space between. That moment between pregnancy and giving birth. If you've sat in that room, that is a super anxious room. And the doctor's often the delivery room. Or if you've sat with someone moving from life into death, that space and that journey can be terrifying. We said the space between child and adult. You could recall others, a move from singleness to being coupled. A move from living with your parents to living by yourself. These are anxiety-producing moments. A change in leadership. Right? Can you feel it? Now, here's the big one. This is sort of like the meta-anxiety-producing transformation. One from the old self to the new self. From the old creation to the new creation. From the realm of the world to the realm of God's kingdom. However you want to explain or understand that journey across or toward God. That's the one. That's the one Jesus is talking about. That's the one that we invite each other into over and over again. And so rightfully so, if we are actually engaged in that true journey, we will feel worry and anxiety. Because we are pulling up the anchor from the old world. We have said, uh, as much as this has been working for my life, my life is changed. And so this anchor no longer has a place. But when you pull it up, you will feel suspended. Anxiety is reaching for control and security in a world that doesn't make sense anymore. I would say our country is in this kind of moment right now. Things are changing rapidly. And in all of that change and in that flux is creating a lot of residual spin-off anxiety. And sometimes anxiety, the way that it solves itself is by turning against one another and turning inward. But like, just some facts. This last year, this last couple of years have seen the first time where the birth rate has been majority non-white. That's new. And over time, each generation existing in this country will be non-white. That's a new reality that we're living within. And it is causing all kinds of anxiety for that old majority culture. We're feeling it. We're seeing it. That march in Charlotte last year, that was that. This fear of change, that the world is different. 
In the last 30 years, technology has rapidly changed the ways that we relate to one another, the ways that we communicate. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Does anyone understand Twitter? Does anyone understand Twitter? What is it for? I don't know. But that's the world that we live in now. There are all kinds of shifts that we are going through. And in each of these moments of shift, it bubbles up again. I really only have a couple of sermons and I just preach them over and over again to you all. One of them is about the Sabbath. I believe that the offer of the Sabbath is God's offer to cure our anxiety. God knows that we need to feel secure, that we need to feel in control, and God knows that that is a farce and it doesn't work. So God gives us at a regular rhythm an invitation to enter into space and time with a different posture, which says, I'm simply going to be in this moment. Right? If Sabbath is anything, it is about a present awareness that you are here and that you are now. And you don't control everything, but God does. This invitation to rest, to sleep, to cease, to stop, like that all It can make us feel anxious. I feel anxious every Sabbath, every time, every time for like months of practice. And finally, I'm like, oh, not going to die. It's going to be okay. But it, right, that's the thing. And here's the thing about Sabbath in the book of Exodus. The the story of the golden calf, it's just kind of like plop right in the middle of the book in chapters 32 through 34. It doesn't make any sense where it is in the narrative. There's this long set of instructions about how to build the tabernacle. And there's this long set of narrative about how they built the tabernacle. That's most of the second half of Exodus. But right in the middle of that is the story of the golden calf. This disruption. This sort of retching back to Egypt and saying we need predictability. We need security and control over whatever is happening to us. But right before and right after this section on the golden calf is God speaking Sabbath back into their lives. It bookends this disruption. And to me, it speaks of anxiety's cure, the antidote. I'll read you the verse. The Lord said to Moses, this is the end of chapter 31, speak to the Israelites and tell them this, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all generations, given in order that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. A little bit later, observe this Sabbath throughout all generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed the language for refreshed is the language of catching your breath again remember Watts's language it's like we live in a society that is a breath retention contest to hold your breath is to lose your breath God is calling that reality to mind you are exhausted you barely can breathe and you are trying to fix that by never ceasing to control your reality So, once a week, God gives this invitation to enter into a different space and time so that you might be refreshed. Then God reiterates this command at the very end of the golden calf story as everything is put back together. If God rests then we should feel free to rest. This is always on offer. This space where you can set your anxiety down. And the other thing I say over and over again is sort of an echo of scripture. It happens like 140 times or so in the Bible. This language of don't be afraid because anxiety and worry it creates fear and fear makes us do crazy things when i was here a year and a half ago or so 
having conversations with you all about whether or not I would get to be your pastor. I'm so glad that I'm your pastor. Uh, someone asked the question, like, what's the one thing you would share? If you could only share one thing that is meaningful you meaningful to you from the Bible or from your own engagement with God, this was my answer. If I could tell you one thing and you could hear it and believe it, it would be that you don't have to be afraid. This is not my language. This is just me echoing what it feels like the Bible says over and over and over again. You may feel like you have reason to be afraid. Right? There are lots of people who don't have enough clothes, who don't have enough food and water, who don't have shelter, whose lives are full of insecurities. It's not that these things don't matter. It's just where your trust lies. Who you think gives you bread. Don't be afraid. Jesus threatens all of the status quo threatens every system that has been built to anchor God down into the world, whether it was honor and shame culture, whether it was the way the law had functioned to bind people's behavior and let you know who is in or who is out. Family and the way family held everyone together. Jesus undoes all of it. And they kill him for it. Right? The fear of the old system falling apart, in three days I will tear down this temple and raise it again. Right? That's terrifying. That is the anchor of the old system disintegrating. When Jesus invites the followers into this journey of disintegration, they are rightfully afraid. And they don't know if they're supposed to pick up a sword or if they're supposed to pick up an old life. And then the crowds that follow are anxious. And in their anxiety, they kill Jesus, who they assume is the source of their undoing. We might think, Don't worry, I'm going to talk about the goose state. It'll make sense in a second. We might think that following Jesus is just a step in the same direction we were always moving. Like it's just a sort of natural progression of a life lived with intention. And then you sort of find this Jesus story and you think that makes sense based on where I was already heading. I don't really need to give up much. I just get to add on top of what's happening right now, this Jesus veneer. And that's the thing. That's not how transformation works. There is a space between forms. And here's what happens. Uh, They've tried to figure out what happens inside a, a Oh, what's the little thing called? Chrysalis? I hate that word. Cocoon? Can I say cocoon? What happens inside of a cocoon? When you go from a caterpillar to a butterfly? Now, I always assumed that in between a caterpillar and a butterfly, inside that cocoon, if you were to slice it open, you may have thought the same thing. You would find a like half caterpillar, half butterfly. Right? That's how I imagine it would work. That sort of the form in between is, is kind of an, an average of the two. So we go from sinful to holy, and in between is like half sinful, half holy. I don't know which half of the body is which. What they found out when they cut in is that the butterfly had melted. When they cut it open, it was just goo. The space between those forms is a complete disintegration before it is reintegrated into something brand new. So, I am not naive to how difficult it is week after week to show up here or to show up in your own lives and try to participate in your own unraveling. In the world becoming liquid, in the floor falling out from under you, that is the invitation. Following Jesus It means that we let go of whatever it was that was working that we were holding on to in hope that we might catch something else over here or that we might be caught by something or someone else over here. And this. For all of our efforts, we do not anchor God. It works the other way. 
God anchors us. And if your religion has been an effort to tie God down so that God will become predictable and static, then it's still the old system. Like it's still the old world. It's still the breath retention contest. And it's fraught with anxiety. God is not the butterfly that we capture and pin to the wall. And there is no anchor or system or method that would work to tie God down. And even when they build a house for God in the tabernacle or the temple, it doesn't contain all of God's power and influence and might. God breaks free. But the good news is that God anchors us. And we spend a lot of our time on high seas with storms or in deserts without signs to point the way. And the invitation is always to find ourselves grounded in God's goodness. The image of a church for a long time in history has been that of a boat. Or like an ark. What that image does is it it tells a couple of really important truths. That the world is high seas. Not always stable and secure. And somehow this community, this collective, this family, that we here call First Baptist Church of Pasadena, connected to the one universal church that exists, It is the anchor that allows us to move through the world. Be in it, but not of it, Jesus says. It's that image of the disciples on the water and the storm shows up and Jesus is sleeping under the boat and they start to freak out because they are not sure if their lives are secure. And Jesus calms it all down. Anxiety is a life unanchored. And we will do anything to anchor ourselves. The choice is always who we trust to ground us. What story we trust to ground us. Here's how I want to finish today. I want to read for you. And I know this is what you're supposed to hear because I was talking to a good friend of mine and it was on his heart too. And that's like, you know, where two or more have the same idea about scripture. There is God. So it's from Romans 8. Paul writes the letter to the church in Rome from prison. It's another one of these letters fraught. And Paul is in a space in between. He used to be in this world Now he's trying to help create this new world. So what I'm going to do is invite you into a time, what we call uh, reflective reading or Lectio Divina. And what that means is I'm going to read a passage of scripture for you out of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read it four times. And I'm going to pause in between each of the readings and just invite you to pull this truth deep inside of you. Paul is writing about The fear of separation. And that's the thing. That we are often terrified that we do not belong to God or to one another or to this existence. And that separation, that alienation, right, that's where the anxious heart resides. So Paul sends up a flare in the midst of our anxiety. So wherever you are. I want you to breathe in, but then also to breathe out, to feel God's presence in this space refreshing you, giving you back your breath, and then you being able to release it back into the world. Remembering that the language for breath is the language for spirit, and it's not just the air you're pulling in, but it is God's very gift that you're receiving And when you breathe out, you are sharing. 
And as much as you are able, open your hearts, open your ears, that they would hear these words from heaven. For the first reading. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not also give with him to us everything else? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. second reading we know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose if God is for us who is against us he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all will he not with him also give us everything else who will separate us from the love of Christ Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. third reading I'm not sure we believe it but see if you would just believe it for as long as the words are spoken into this space we know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose if God is for us who is against us he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us will he not with him also give us everything else who will separate us from the love of Christ Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the final reading, for those of you who feel far away, who feel separated from your own soul and from the God who made you, for those of you who are tired of trying to secure God in your life, and for those of you who are afraid, may these words and the truth behind them be for you like water. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not withhold his own son gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? And who would separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what I can say as we end. I know that this is hard. This following after Jesus, I know how much it is costing us. I understand that I'm inviting you to your own disintegration, to leave behind a world that has worked for you. But I trust that on the other side of the falling apart is it being put back together into something new and beautiful. And I also promise you that I will be with you in that journey. And so will these around you, these friends and family. If you're going to fall apart, do it here so that others can point you to the way that they were put back together. Nothing can separate you from the love that has been pursuing you always. Would you pray with me and then we'll continue to worship. God, you've been through this journey. In Christ faced disintegration, faced even death, faced the grave. And out of that space, you have brought signs of spring and newness and life that we could not have even imagined. And so in our falling apart, God, we trust you. And in your putting us back together, we give thanks. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.